0: Section 1 of The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dionne Jines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2, by Charles E. Flandreau. Section 1. Hunting Wolves in Bed. Forty-six years ago, almost immediately after my arrival in St. Paul, I accepted an offer to explore the valley of the Minnesota River and its tributaries, with reference to finding out the character of its soil, timber, steamboat landings, and other natural features bearing upon the founding of a city. My attention was particularly directed to the point where St. Peter now stands, which had then acquired the name of Rock Bend, from a turn in the river, in front of the prairie, with a rocky wall, which presented a fine landing for steamboats. Of course, the valley was not a terra incognito when I entered it, but settlement was very sparse, and very little was known about it. Townsite speculation was rife, and any place that looked as if it would ever be settled was being pounced upon for a future city. There was not a railroad west of Chicago, and every town location was, of course, governed by the rivers. As strange as it may seem to the residents of the present day, the Minnesota was then a navigable stream, capable of carrying large side-wheel steamers several hundred miles above its mouth, and afterwards bore an immense commerce. As soon as the ice broke up in the spring, the river would rise and overflow its banks, clear to the bluffs on each side making a stream of from five to six miles wide, and deep enough to float boats anywhere within its limits. A man by the name of William B. Dodd, better known as Captain Dodd in those days, had selected a claim at Rock Bend, covering the landing, and had laid out a road from the Mississippi to this point. He wanted to interest capitalists to start a town on his claim, and had succeeded in gaining the attention of Willis A. Gorman, then governor of the territory, and several other gentlemen. But none of them had ever been up the valley, and reliable information was difficult to obtain. It was true that Tom Holmes had laid out Chicopee and Henry Jackson and P.K. Johnson, with a syndicate behind them, had selected Mankato, and I think there was a settler or two at LaSore but the whole valley may be said to have been at that time in the possession of Indians, Indian traders, and missionaries. The St. Paul gentleman who had been approached by Captain Dodd engaged me to go up the valley of the Minnesota River and follow out all its tributaries with the idea of reporting upon its general characteristics and prospects with reference to the founding of a city at Rock Bend. I was delighted to do anything or go anywhere that promised work or adventure. It was to me that the Klondike has been to thousands recently. They furnished me with a good team, and away I went. It was in the winter, but I succeeded in reaching Traverse de Sioux, where I found a collection of Indian trading houses, where flourished Lewis Roberts, Major Forbes, Nathan Myrick, Madison Sweetser, and others who drove a trade with the Sioux. There was also at this point a missionary station with a schoolhouse, a church and a substantial dwelling-house occupied by the reverend moses N. adams who had been a missionary among the sioux having been transferred from this station at loch kiparl where he had lived for many years to this point But the best find that I made was a young Scotchman by the name of Stuart B. Garvey, who had a shanty on the prairie about midway between Traverse des Sioux and my objective point, Rock Bend. I think that Garvey went up there from St. Anthony under some kind of a promise from Judge Chatfield that if ever the courts were organized in that region, he would be made the clerk. Garvey was delighted to discover me and I being in search of information, we soon fraternized, and he agreed to go with me on my tour of exploration. We went up the Blue Earth, the lassour, the Wanton One, and in fact visited all the country that was necessary to convince me that it was, by and large, a splendid agricultural region, and I decided so to report to my principals. When I was about to leave for down the river, Garvey insisted that I should return and take up my abode at Traverse de Sioux. The proposition seemed too absurd to me to be seriously entertained, and I said I am destitute of funds, how can a lawyer subsist where there are no people? How can I get a living? This dilemma, which seemed to me to be insuperable, was easily answered by my new found friend. Why, he said, That is the easiest part of it. We can hunt a living, and I have a shack and a bed. The proposition was catching, having a spice of adventure in it, and I promised to consider it. After making my report, in which I recommended Rock Bend as a promising place for a great city, I told the parties who proposed to purchase Captain Dodd's claim that I would confirm my faith in the success of the Enterprise by returning and living at the point. I did so and found myself farther west than any lawyer in the United States, east of the Rocky Mountains, unless he was in the panhandle of Texas. And now comes the singular way in which I made my first fee, if I may call it by that name. It was my first financial raise, no matter what you call it. Garvey and I had gotten quietly settled in our shanty on the prairie when one excessively cold night, an Indian boy, about 13 years of age, saw our light and came to the door, giving us to understand that his people were encamped about four or five miles up the river, and that he was afraid to go any further, lest he should freeze to death. He was mounted on a pony, had a pack of furs with him, and asked us to take him in for the night. We, of course, did so, and made him as comfortable as we could by giving him a buffalo robe on the floor but we had no shelter for his pony, and all we could do was to hitch him on the lee side of the shanty and strap a blanket on him. When morning came, he was frozen to death. We got the poor little boy safely off on the way to his people's camp and decided to utilize the carcass of the pony for a wolf bait. In order to present an intelligent idea of the situation, I will say that the river made an immense detour in front of the future town, having a large extent of bottomland, covered with a dense chaparral, which was the home of thousands of wolves. And as soon as night came, they would start out in droves in search of prey. We hauled the dead pony out to the back of the shanty and left it about two rods distant from the window. The moment night set in, the wolves in packs would attack the carcass. At first we would step outside and fire into them with buckshot from double-barreled shotguns, but we found they were so wary that the mere movement of opening the door to get out would frighten them, and we had very limited success for the first few nights. Another difficulty we encountered was shooting in the dark. If you have never tried it, and ever do, you will find it exceedingly difficult to get any kind of an aim. And you have to fire promiscuously at the sound rather than the object. We remedied this trouble, however, by taking out a light of glass from the back window and building a rest that bore directly on the carcass so that we could poke our guns through the opening, settle them on the rest, and blaze away into the gloom. We brought our bed up to the window so that we could shoot without getting out of it while snugly wrapped up in our blankets, after this, our luck improved, and after each discharge, we would rush out, armed with a tomahawk, dispatch the wounded wolves, and collect the dead ones, until we had slaughtered 42 of them. We skinned them and sold the pelts to the traders for 75 cents apiece, which money was the first of our earnings. It was not long before we ceased to depend on wolf-hunting for a living, as immigration soon poured in and money became plenty. I remember soon after of having seventeen hundred dollars in gold buried in an oyster can under the shanty. I lived on this prairie for eleven years and never was happier at any period of my life, and feel assured that I can safely say that no other man ever enjoyed the luxury of hunting wolves in bed. The pleasure of narrating such adventures for the present generation is, in this instance, marred by the reflection that both Captain Dodd and my old friend Garvey were killed by the Indians in 1862, the former while gallantly fighting at the Battle of New Ulm, and the latter at the Yellow Medicine Agency on the first day of the outbreak. End of section one.